For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. So we're in Hebrews chapter 4. We've been talking a lot about the context of the Hebrew audience, that they're under this incredible pressure to go back to traditional Judaism. This is a community of people in the first century who are from a Jewish background that believe that Jesus was the Messiah. A lot of them were probably in Jerusalem at the time that Jesus was there, at the time of his crucifixion, and in the incredible time after his resurrection, had witnessed these things and had come to believe that Jesus' teachings were correct and he was, in fact, the promised Messiah. Last week, we got into Hebrews 3, and we learned about the wilderness generation, that the author of Hebrews takes his audience back to a subject that they would be familiar with, which was the Exodus generation, who was taken out of slavery, uh, led by Moses into the desert, led right up to the promised land that God had promised their ancestors, with the idea that they were going to go in and uh, take this land, and that they failed that they got scared because there were big, strong, mean-looking people in there, and there were fortresses with thick and high walls, and they just decided there's no way that we could do this, even though they had seen so much of God's provision with the plagues and the parting of the Red Sea, and that the author is talking to his audience, and he's saying, this struggle that you're going through is, is very similar to the struggle that they went through. You've seen the power of God. You've seen the miracles of of Jesus' resurrection. You have all this evidence that God is behind this and that he is real. And if you fall back, you deny who Jesus is and go back to the traditions of your ancestors, you will be missing out on the incredible provision, the credible life that God wants and has for you. And it's much like that wilderness generation. So he was saying, don't harden your heart to God. Don't tell God no now because things are hard. Don't turn away. Persevere and experience the fullness of what God has for you. And he referred to that in the context of this issue of this this term of God's rest. And we had to go through and make clear that, you know, when he's saying that God did not let them, God in his wrath did not let them enter his rest, that it wasn't salvation that he was talking about. It was in that context for those people entering God's rest was entering the land, entering the promised land, which is kind of ironic if you think about it, because for them entering God's rest meant going to war. But it was God's rest is experiencing the fullness of what God has for you. And that the point really is you can have very difficult circumstances, you can have calamity, you can have persecution, you can have war, but if you trust in God and you follow after him and you believe and know that he's in charge, you are going to be able to find peace even in the midst of incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're going to be able to see the fullness of what God has for you. We had to go through and we had to show that uh, God forgave them. He said that uh, he would not let them enter his land and that they underwent God's wrath, which was part of the confusion. But God's wrath in that context was he was angry with them for saying no, 
for refusing to believe him, for refusing to trust him. But Moses prayed and said, God, I pray that you'll forgive them. I know that we've, we've been stubborn and we've been rebellious and we've had a hard time and we, we tend to not listen to you. And God says, of course, I'll forgive them. But that doesn't mean they get to enter the land. So there were consequences for the decisions that they made. They had limited themselves from seeing the fullness of God's plan for them, but God forgave them for their rebellion. They were still in a right relationship with him. And it's important to remind you of this because this continues on, this issue continues on as we go into Hebrews 4. So let's look at Hebrews 4 verse 1, verses 1 and 2. He says, therefore, let us fear If while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, meaning the wilderness generation. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was was not united by faith in those who heard it. And so, you know, if you're like me, you're reading through the book of Hebrews, you're reading along, and you're kind of wrestling with these concepts, is what is God's rest? What is hardening your heart? What happened to that wilderness generation? And you're looking through this stuff and you're, you're, you're trying to digest it. And then you get here and you're like, maybe it is salvation. I mean, look at the words that are being used there. If we break down what he just said, what he said is, We should all be afraid of being like the generation that died in the wilderness. That is a fear that we should live in. They heard the good news, just like we heard the good news. They did not believe, and they did not enter God's rest. And you read that, and you're like, oh, I was feeling confident last week, but now I get here, and I'm just like, oh, what does it mean? What is God's rest? We demonstrated that for them, for the wilderness generation, entering, failing to enter God's rest was failing to enter the land. But now our author is saying to a generation hundreds of years later, he's warning them and telling them that they should be afraid of hardening their hearts and not entering God's rest. And what's really odd is they're in the land. They're already there. As they're reading this, they're in the land. So how, what is God's rest for them? Becomes an important question. And what is it that they should fear? How is it that God is, is warning them to not be like the wilderness generation? What are the parallels there? And what is it that we can take away from understanding this? Now, the majority view on this question uh, takes a pretty hard track in understanding what this is. If you check out 10 conservative commentaries on the book of Hebrews, probably seven of them will say something like this. What, What the author is saying here is that the audience should fear succumbing to the social pressure. They should fear falling back to the temple worship and rejecting God's provision for them in Christ because if they do that, it proves they were never believers in the first place. 
And they read this and they say, you know, that's essentially what's being said here is a warning saying, listen, don't give up in the face of this because if you give up now, it means you never had true faith. And that believers should live in some kind of tension on that question of, you know, if I ever give up, if I ever walk away from God, does that mean I was never a believer to begin with? F.F. Bruce, whose commentary I love on the book of Hebrews, seems to be in this camp. He says, again, the paramount necessity of perseverance is stressed. Only if they kept their original confidence firm to the end could they truly be called partners of Christ. And this is how many people take this, but I think we should slow down and we should, we should ruminate on this some because the importance of the implications of this uh, is very high. Should we as brothers and sisters, as children of God, as followers of Jesus Christ, live in fear of failing God? Is that a motive that God wants to use to drive us to faith? And something that we should be aware of is fear of hell supposed to be a motivating factor for faith? Is that something that God does? Is that something that the Bible does? And a lot of us would be like, well, if you grew up where I grew up, you'd know that, that yeah, that's, we heard that a lot, right? Whether it was mom and dad or the local church that we grew up in, a lot of us have this impression. A lot of us are kind of wounded, and we have to fight this impression of God's always looking. He's staring at us, just waiting for us to screw up because he's eager to judge, Right? God's the grumpy old man in the sky who, from you know, Monty Python who's paring over the clouds looking down and he can't wait to throw lightning bolts at us. Is that fear a biblical fear or is that a creation of the enemies of God to misrepresent who he is? So one of the things that I think is helpful here is to talk about how, how do we interpret something like this? What are some rules that we would follow if we're saying, okay, we have a confusing passage that is not as clear as, as most of Scripture is, and what would be our process for going through that? Well, we have to start with the goal of all interpretation really should be to understand what the author meant when they said it, right? Right? So what is it that the author was saying, and understanding some background on the author would be helpful. It's difficult in the case of Hebrews. Understanding the audience, that's a little bit easier. We have extra biblical sources for understanding their culture, their history, and we have the Old Testament, which is very helpful for that. Each passage we look at really should be interpreted within its own context. That if, you know, you just go, so a lot of times people go to the Bible and they're like, well, let's see what God has to say to me today. And they open it up and they point at something and then they read it and they're like, okay, what does that mean to me? I'm not saying God can't work through that. I'm sure he has. But that's not really the way that we're supposed to approach Scripture. We're supposed to approach it from the standpoint of it being consistent with itself. That we interpret what we're reading in light of the larger picture of what's been said, and that God actually sets boundaries for us so that we can more easily and more authoritatively land on our sense of not what does this mean to me, but what does it mean to the author? What was the author trying to say when they wrote it? 
And another thing that we would, we would use, another tool, is we would always want to be able to interpret what's unclear using what's clear. If the Bible has to be consistent with itself, right, then we can look at the things that are unclear and say, okay, there's a few things in Scripture that are difficult And let's take the things that are absolutely crystal clear and use those as the boundaries for understanding what's less clear. So just to give you an example of how we might approach this, we would say, okay, who is the author talking to, right? I start almost every meeting with a little bit about reminding you of the context and reminding you of the author and, and the audience because it's so important, right? Here in Hebrews 3, he says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle of the high priest of our confession. These are Christians from a Jewish background, and they are undergoing pressure to return to rabbinic Judaism. That's who they are. The pressure, the tension of what the author is pressing, one of the major themes of the entire book of Hebrews is perseverance. Not giving up, Not turning away, standing on the truth, understanding the connections of the teachings of Jesus Christ, how they are connected all the way back through the Old Testament, and that this is true and that it's worth suffering for. And that's the context of what's being said right here. That's the whole reason he's using the imagery of the wilderness generation to talk to them about what's going on. We can look at other scriptures and we ask that question, should Christians live in fear of not being forgiven? And there's a mountain of verses that would say that is absolutely not how God wants his children to live. Romans 11, 29 comes to mind, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That God, when he gives something, he does not take it back. The call of God, the relationship with God, We could look at a mountain of verses that talk about how we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, how there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I think 1 John 4, 18 and 19 is very poignant on this particular question, where it says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. This was not written by a God who wants us trembling in fear, wondering, am I going to give up on him someday? Who wants to use fear as a motivator to push us to faith. Quite the opposite. He's a God who wants to use love as a motivator to encourage us to faith. So when we interpret the unclear in light of the clear, we begin to see a picture that says this whole idea that uh, we should be living in fear of rejecting God one day and that that's, that should keep us in becomes a lot more unlikely. It's clear, for example, that the wilderness generation, uh, for that, that re- God's rest for them wasn't salvation. We studied that. It's absolutely clear entering God's rest for them was entering into the land. It's also clear from just a few of the scriptures that we just read that Christians shouldn't fear judgment, that nothing could separate us from the love of God. No one can snatch us from Jesus' hand. That's very clear. 
Warren Wearsby, who I really like and who agrees with, with, with us on this particular passage, says, does apostasy mean abandoning one's faith and therefore being condemned forever? That doesn't fit into this context. Israel departed from the living God by refusing God's will for their lives and stubbornly wanting to go back to Egypt. He's talking about the wilderness generation. God did not permit them to return to Egypt. Rather, he disciplined them in the wilderness. God did not allow his people to return to bondage. And so his point is, is if if God wanted them to give up on them, he would have let them go back. Instead, he disciplined them as sons and raised up of the next generation to continue with the plan. So again, comparing these two groups, the wilderness generation and the audience of, of, of Hebrews, we go through what we just read and we see, okay, he says, for indeed we have had good news preached to us just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them. And you're like, yeah, good news, gospel. Okay, Ryan. What is he saying? He said the wilderness generation had the gospel preached to them and they rejected it. We all know what that means. Well, the word good news in the Greek is euangelion. And it is absolutely true that in most of the New Testament, the word euangelion refers to the gospel, refers to the message that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for our sins. That's absolutely true. But what's also true is it isn't used that way every time. The word good news has other usages. The word euangelion has other usages. And to understand it in its context, you have to understand what it meant in Greek culture. Euangelion, gospel, was a word that was seized upon by New Testament authors because it had a significant cultural heritage connected to it. The good news originally was a declaration of a great victory. You got to remember, ancient world, no internet, no printing press. Communication was very slow, and sometimes things would happen very quickly. And the word would have to get out to as many people as possible that there was a major change in order to bring them into line. You could wake up one morning, a citizen of Israel, knowing down there on the plain, your army was fighting the army of Babylon. And that at the end of the day, depending on who was victorious, you could be an Israelite or you could be a Babylonian. And the rules and the laws that would apply to you would change in that moment. So a crier was somebody (coughs) who would wait until the battle was decided and then they would ride through the town and they would say, good news, everybody, regardless of who won, because whoever was now in power, you wanted to be on their side. So Babylon won. You were like, great news, everybody. We're Babylonians now. And everybody would be like, hmm, okay, we need to know. That was good news. That was euangelion. So you can see why New Testament authors, when Jesus went to die on the cross and take away the sins of the world, he defeated death for all time. And that was the best news. A battle had been fought between God and Satan for the heart and soul of mankind. And the good news was that Jesus died so that we could be saved. And death was defeated It was the euangelion. 
The good news to the wilderness generation would have been different. They would not have heard Jesus Christ crucified. They would have had understanding of things like uh, salvation through the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Salvation through the God of Moses comes by faith, not by works. They had a temple sacrifice system that taught them that there needed to be an innocent substitute. But the good news in the context of the author of Hebrews is God has rescued them from slavery in Egypt and promised them a new home that he had promised their ancestor Abraham. Their good news, the declaration was, God has heard your cry after 400 years of slavery and is now going to bring you into the fulfillment of his plan for your people. That was their good news. The good news for the author or for the audience of Hebrews was freedom from the bondage of sin. The good news that they needed to hear, they needed to understand in this proper context was even in their very difficult circumstances, they could find rest. They could find peace. They could find contentment in the middle of the most disparaging circumstances by putting their trust in him. So Hebrews 4 goes on in 4 through 6, and he says, For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them, failed to enter because of disobedience. So what he's doing again is he's quoting from the Old Testament, specifically from Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, and Psalm 95. And he's explaining to them more fully this idea of what God's rest was. God's rest was not just entering the land. Before that, it was the Sabbath. When God, in Genesis 2, verse 2, finished creating the world, it says on the seventh day he rested. Which is a really interesting way of talking about it, seeing as how even though God was doing something Herculean, and that would require immense power, speaking life and the planet into existence, he has limitless power. So it's not like at the end of six days, he's like, whew, I need a break. It says that he ceased from creating in order to enjoy what had been created. It signaled the completion of that particular creative effort and then signaled to us that we were here not just to work, not just to take care of creation, but to enjoy creation, to enjoy God's provision. God had a plan for the human race. He had provided for us a miracle, an amazing place to live and to connect with him and to connect with each other. And we were to take time to enjoy that creation. That's what the Sabbath is supposed to be. What did we do? We took it and turned it into a stuffy thing on Sunday and Sunday morning, you know, where you have, you sort of dread the God part and then get on with football. But God's point was, this was to be a time where we were to enjoy him and enjoy one another. And Psalm 95 and Numbers 14, entering God's rest was entering the land, which again meant to enjoy what God had given them. To take the time 
to recognize God's glorious provision for them and to be confident that they could continue to trust God no matter what happened with their circumstances. So when we think about it that way, the issue of God's rest, whether it's Genesis 2, Psalm 95, or Hebrews 4, begins to take a much clearer picture. God's rest in all of those cases is about trusting that God is in charge. It's about believing in the sovereignty of God. It's about understanding God's will and desire to provide for us. That God is not evil. God is not the grumpy old man peering at us waiting to strike. But he is the generous father who wants to give us good things. God's rest is enjoying the things that God has intended for his children. It's being confident in the middle of difficult circumstances, whether it's you're a farmer and you're not going to work today because it's the Sabbath and you're going to enjoy God and you're going to trust that you can take a day off and still feed your family, or whether it's believing God that these people that are in this land that he has promised you, he's going to give you victory over them, or whether it's believing God that these people who are persecuting are wrong and that you are ultimately going to find fulfillment by sticking with what you know is true. It's all about believing that God is trustworthy and entering his rest is something we do as believers by grabbing hold of truth and his provision. One more way we could look at this is we could say, which of these two is more consistent with the character of Jesus Christ? Is the author of Hebrews saying, watch out, give in to this persecution, and you're going to burn in hell. The thing you need to worry about right now, oh Hebrews, is the wrath of God coming down on you if you cowardly reject him. That's option one. Option two would be, you should be afraid. The thing that you should be afraid of is missing out on God's provision for you. Don't give up and don't miss the peace that God can bring you. We should all be looking at ourselves and saying, am I plateauing spiritually? Have I gone this far with God and I will go no further? And am I hardening my heart, which means that I am going to experience less than the fullness of what God has prepared for me in his loving kindness. That is a concern that we should have. But it's not a concern that motivates us to do good things. It's a concern that motivates us to turn before God and, and, and wonder, is my heart hard before him? Or am I still telling him yes? Again, going to Warren Wiersbe on this, he says, now we can understand what the wilderness wanderings represent. The experience of believers who will not claim their spiritual inheritance in Christ, who doubt God's word and live in restless unbelief. To be sure, God is with them as he was with Israel, but they do not enjoy the fullness of God's blessing. They are out of Egypt, but they are not yet in Canaan. They're in They're moving along a process of receiving the good things that God has for them, and then they cut that process short because they're not willing to trust him. 
F.B. Meyer put it this way. He said, to all of us, Christ offers rest, not in the next life only, but also in this life. Rest from the weight of sin, from care and worry, from the load of daily anxiety and foreboding. The rest that arrives from handing over our worries to Christ and receiving from Christ all we need. And I think there's a lot of us who have been walking with God who know that we believe in God and we've made sacrifices and we've, we've, we've withstood trials. But we still realize that we are racked with anxiety and worry and that the joy that God has for us is constantly being robbed by a lack of faith on our part to trust in Him. Often I think people like that, myself included, will read something like Matthew eleven twenty nine and 30, where Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Those of us who have chosen a path of leadership in the church can read that and be like, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. <laughs> have you seen these people? Right? <laughs> Sorry, I like channeled Rodney Dangerfield there for a second. It's just this, you know, you get into this and you say, this is hard. Serving is hard. Turning the other cheek is hard. Loving and standing against a dark culture is hard. Being hated by people who don't even understand me is hard. Being falsely accused is hard. What do you mean my yoke is easy and my burden is light? And the answer is really has to do with this concept of God's rest. His yoke is easy and his burden is light when it's his yoke. When you're going with him and he's carrying the load, it's great. But when you start thinking it's your yoke, it's your load, it's your job, and it all depends on you, then you start to feel the crushing weight of responsibility that was never meant for you. And that is the message here, that is the heart here for us as believers is to begin to understand that God wants to take that burden, that load, and use you in powerful ways and put you in difficult circumstances and have you be at peace. What does it all mean? It's clear that we come to faith. We come to a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. It says, as many as received him, he gave the right to become children of God. This is a gift of God. It cannot be earned. You don't get this from going to church. You don't get this from giving in the basket. You don't get this from being a good person. You get this from personal brokenness and humility of breaking to the point where you're just saying, God, I can't be good enough on my own. I need you. With that comes the assurance of salvation, of eternal life with him. With that comes the reality That no matter how far and how bad you mess up and how bad things get in this life, you're promised eternity with him forever. Where there is no pain, there is no suffering, there is only love and truth and community and light. And he will wipe the tears away from your eyes and set you up the way that you were meant to be forever. 
This is winning at the game of life. But it doesn't always feel that way because there's still life to live, life to play out. And this decision doesn't mean that we'll be exempt from tragedy. All the bad things that happen to other people still happen to us as followers of Jesus Christ. We still hurt the people we love. We still fail. We fall down. We, are, we humiliate ourselves. We're still subject to natural disasters. And we're still diagnosed with cancer. We still have to pay our bills and protect our children and live in a world that seems like it is spinning out of control with chaos. We still experience rejection, maybe persecution. There is no guarantee of protection from the evil whims of our fellow man. And so we still live that out. But it's with the understanding that no matter what happens, when all of it win, when all of it ends, we have a great eternity in front of us. And we need to be reminded of that in the midst of the difficulties of this life. As believers, as children of God, we can face the problems and the anxieties of this life on our own. We can, you know, stand up and say, I'm going to do this and I'm going to muscle through and I'm not going to be set back. And we can take it all upon our shoulders and then burn out, break down, find ourselves lacking and the ability to move forward, and eventually shaking our fist at God and saying, where were you? But it's because we refuse to lay hold of what God has promised us. Or we can trust him and experience the rest of God even in the most difficult of circumstances. Even in the midst of the greatest hardship. This is why the author of Hebrews goes on and says, therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through, will, will, no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. Isn't that interesting? I've had a few experiences with this in my life. About two years ago, uh, Dennis and Gary, the founders and lead pastors of our church, came to me and said, we're thinking about stepping away from leading the church, and we think we want you to be one of the guys that takes our place. And I just thought, I've got enough to do already. I don't, I'm not looking for more responsibility. I mean, it was flattering, it was exciting. You know, this is a great church with great, incredible people and incredible resources to get incredible things done. But to me, it was like I had a front row seat of those guys' lives. And it was like they were coming out of a room that none of us had ever been in before, and they were bludgeoned with black eyes and like a sling on their hand. They're like, hey, want to go in there? And I was like, uh, uh-uh. I don't know how many nights in a, I don't know how many nights it happened. It had to be at least 10 over a period of, of several months as, you know, as that opportunity and that, that, that incredible stewardship was becoming a reality in my mind. 
I woke up at 3.30 on the dot every night. I have no idea why. I just remember looking at the clock and it's saying 3.30 on the dot. And yes, it did actually adjust for daylight savings time, weirdly. <laughs> With panic in my heart. And, you know, it was, it was odd because panic for me, anxiety, you know, I, I have anxiety, I experience anxiety, but I've never had anything like what I would call a panic attack. And my self-perception is sort of, you know, as a, as a tougher person who doesn't need, you know, to worry about things like that. And it would just be like crushing fear. And the thought process was the same every time. In my head, it would be like, I'm going to fail I'm going to let everybody down. I'm going to be humiliated. I'm going to destroy something that's beautiful and that I love and that has done so much good for so many people. And I'm going to be involved in its destruction. And that fear, those thoughts, would be met with kind of a, just a simple message from God. I would kind of cry out like, God, you know, I don't... I don't I don't want to be responsible for so much. And he would say, Ryan, you're just not that important. What you really need to realize is, is that this doesn't all fall on you. I know that in your heart and in the way that you, you are, you want to make yourself responsible and you want to think that you're important. I mean, all I really heard him say or sensed him saying in my heart was, Ryan, you're not that important. But what it meant was clear, which was that God is the head of the church. And Xenos would be just fine without me. And that God had all kinds of people in all kinds of places to accomplish his will. And that my role was a privilege, but it wasn't, it wasn't like God was biting his nails saying, Ryan, please say yes. But in my arrogance... And my love of self, I wanted to view it that way, which opened the door for losing God's rest. And what would happen would be, God would say, Ryan, you're just not that important. And then it would be like a flood of peace would come rushing in. Oh, that's right. I'm not that important. I couldn't destroy God's purposes. I couldn't, I couldn't put a dent in God's purposes in the big picture. And this is a privilege, it's an opportunity, but it doesn't all rest on me. And I would fall back asleep. Ten times or more that happened over a period of several months. And it really illustrated, it really helped me to understand this passage in a new way when we talk about entering God's rest. So whether we're struggling with, you know, our kids are in rebellion, or my, my, my boss is breathing down my neck, or my spouse and I can't get along, or I don't know how I'm going to pay the rent or the mortgage this month, I don't know how I'm going to uphold and deal with all the responsibilities that God has for me and that the world feels like it's crushing in on me. This is telling us that we're moving away from God's rest. God's rest is something that we have to choose to do. That's why he words it here so interestingly. He says, therefore, let us be diligent to enter rest. You ever think about that? What is diligence? It's hard work. You have to be doing, working really hard at resting. It, it doesn't make a lot of sense on the surface until you think about, it's not about, you know, what you do physically, but it's about you understanding and letting go 
It's something that you have to choose to do. It's something that doesn't come naturally or easily. We want to cling on. We want to control things. We want it to be ours. We want a sense of, of, of self-empowerment. But rest, God's rest is not a work that we do. It's a burden that we let go of. We have to be diligent to drop the bags and let God carry them to realize our place in his larger plan. And the only fear, the only anxiety, the only tension there should be at all in our hearts is, am I hardening my heart before God? Am I trying to do God's work without him? Because it's hard to let go. Because we want to believe so very much in ourselves. We have to cease trying to do God's work without God. And we need to trust him. We need to recognize that our heart and our circumstances are no mystery to God. And I love how the author starts getting really practical with his audience as we finish out the chapter here. He says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit and both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature that is hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. God knows you. He knows your thoughts. He knows your anxieties. He knows all about you. You need to recognize that you are already laid bare before him. I think sometimes when we get into the fear of failure, the fear of letting other people know, like at the heart of my fear and those anxiety attacks that I was having was the fear of being exposed as a fraud. That somehow everybody would decide, oh, look at Ryan and look at what he did. And, you know, but really he had all these problems because I know I have all these problems. But God knows those problems even better than I do. And he has decided to allow me to play a role and a part. We are laid bare before him. There is no mystery to us where God is concerned. And that's supposed to comfort us because he loves us anyway, because he's accepted us, and he still wants to use us in other people's lives. Our part is to come to his word, to read and reflect and open ourselves before him so that he can show us more clearly who he is. That we can relate to him and we can connect to him and that that is a process in which he will need and soften our hearts so that we can be more responsive to him. Our part is to recognize that he is good and that his desire is to love and help us. We're always being like, no, God, don't, you know, don't come after me. Don't expose me. Don't break me. But he's like, come into my rest. Come close to me and enjoy me and have confidence that I am on your side. The author continues in 4.15. He says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. 
that big, scary God that we feel like, especially when we're being sinful, we need to escape from, is right there saying, come on in. Find rest. I know what it's like. I understand the struggle. I understand the strife. I came and I dwelled among you. I experienced what you experienced. Chuck Smith says, many times we find that it is our unbelief that keeps us from entering into the full, rich life that God would have for us to experience and to enjoy. Again, our problem is looking at our own resources and looking at the power of the enemy. Always when we get our eyes off the Lord and onto the enemy, terror fills our heart and unbelief. We've got to know that there's a greater power with us than that which is against us. We need to know and believe that God is sympathetic to our situation. And it says that he throws open the doors of the throne room and invites us as children to come in and boldly approach him as though we were familiar, as though we were family. That we should not be afraid because we have full access to who he is because he wants to be involved in all the little things that are eating away at our rest. And we can trust him with that which we love the most. That's one of the hardest things. That's something that's going on in my life right now. My son just moved out. I don't even know if I can talk about it. It's glorious in the sense of, it's, it was the goal the whole time, was for him to grow up and, and be independent and he's great, and he's everything that I could hope for and want and a son and a friend and a, and a man of God. I'm sure as a parent, I don't know everything that's going on in his life, but everything that I can look at, he just looks like he's the best of his mom and I. And yet I'm sad. And I'm scared. I think about watching him Sorry. I think about watching him go away on the school bus for the first time when he was five. And how that drove us to our knees in prayer. And now he's finished school. He's working full time. He's getting ready to go to college. And he has given me no reason to fear. But I go down to the house that he's living with, with a bunch of guys same kind of thing that I lived in 20 years ago. But you have a different perspective when, you know, you haven't been living that way for a while. You know, at for my first thought was like, this is like a migrant strawberry picker bunkhouse. Like, that was my first thought. And I'm looking at all the safety issues that are involved. And again, God was like, you can trust me with this. I love him more than you could. And this is not something that you should be anxious about. This is something you should rejoice in. So I keep telling myself that, and um, I'll report back when I believe it. (laughs) Psalm 46.10 says, Cease striving and know that I am God. That's what God's rest is. Cease trying to take responsibility for everything. And trust that God is sovereign and that he has your back. 
If you don't know God, you have to lay down your pride and you have to admit your need for God's help. That's it. You can't go any further with him until you understand your need for him. And he is good and he is gracious and he is loving and he will be right there, but we have to break in order to let him in. And then as we walk with God, we need to be constantly reminded of this truth. We cannot accomplish the purposes of God without God. Some of us are more prone to want to do that than others. I understand that. I'm definitely one who wants to do things. I would rather do things than think about things or talk about things. Certainly, I would rather do things than pray about things. And that is not God's way. And what happens is a regular cycle of burnout, of brokenness, of repentance, of getting healed, of getting back on the path, of feeling great about things, and then of taking control and starting to do it myself and then burning out and then being broken and then being repentant. I don't know how many times I've been through that cycle. I like to think they're getting longer. I'm not sure that's even true. But that is what it is, is to understand and find peace and rest in the sovereignty of God and that you can come home to him with your fears and your anxieties and your pain. That's what I've got on Hebrews 4. God, thanks for this time that we've had here together. Thanks that you are a good God. You're loving and you want good things for us. Save us from ourselves. Protect us from believing in ourselves and from striving in ways that, 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 that don't accomplish your purposes. And help us to grow and, and learn what it means to rest and help us to stay true to the love motive that you've given us and not to pressure others, not to shame others, uh, not to cause others to fear, but to show them a glorious picture of what they'd be missing out on if they told you no. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.